0: Thank you very much for that round of applause in advance. In an hour and a half, you can give the second round of applause. (laughs) Um, Yeah, my name is Paul. I am I'm from God's other country, Canada. But I've been in I've been on this side of the Atlantic and mostly in the north of Ireland. Since 2000, for 23 years, so uh, Hinch is where I live and do church. Uh, I have three kids and a wife and all that stuff, Um, and you guys all know, what you all love probably about Hinch if you've been there, is it's the bottleneck. It takes about 45 minutes to get through, even though it's only 5,000 people. So, but yeah, it's a privilege to be here. We have loved over the last sort of five or six or seven years journeying with Tabar, and Chris and Al and all the other guys and the relationship and the accountability and the life that is for so many bodies of believers all over this land. And it's expanding. It's really exciting uh, to be part of it. I'm going to try to keep this thing near my mouth. I'm a hands talker. So if you can't hear me and I'm doing this, sorry, guys that are recording or whatever you're doing, but I'll try to keep it close. I want to start with a question, and I I think you'll be able to track with me, but, but Just have patience. Is anyone here addicted to what's next? One of the things I have to battle with in my personality is the constant desire to be looking ahead to what's next. Not what's now, what's next. I was just on holiday with my family, and even in that situation, no matter what I'm doing, I'm looking ahead to what's next. I'm eating lunch, and I'm thinking about, oh, it'll be so good to be out in the paddleboard with my girls. And then I'm out in the paddleboard at Cranfield. Anyone here been to Cranfield? That's Portadown's south coast, isn't it? Um, or then I'm out in the paddleboard with my girls and my wife or my boy or whatever, and all I'm thinking about is the coffee. Or the treat, all, my, my, what, it drives my wife crazy. I'm always asking, when are we going to have coffee? When are we going to do <laughs> I'm look, I'm thinking about the coffee. Or, or then I'm having coffee, and I'm thinking about where could we go for a walk? Or what could we do? What could I do next? Or I, I stop to read, and... Often we read on this, and I'm scrolling the news, and probably like many of us, it's what's the next headline? What's the next thing going on? What's the next feed on YouTube? Right now, the thing that seems to be filling my YouTube is death dives. Has anyone seen these death dives? It's like a belly. F- doesn't matter. Do you know what I'm talking about? The death they fall. It's the biggest craze on YouTube right now. And that's, you know, what's next? What can I see? What's, what's, what's going on? Not what's now. And even with the church, I work as obviously for Grace, and no matter what we're in the middle of, no matter what sermon series or project, I'm always thinking of what's the next one we can be doing. And, And as we're bringing something to a close, when I should be thinking about and wanting to sit in debrief and prayer and review and learning from what's just happening, I want to be getting the church ready for what's next, getting people energized, getting people excited, getting people engaged. And and that's, it's the way I'm wired, but I think it's the way the world is wired today. Does anyone have the 21st century muscle memory? I'm a sports science background guy. Does anyone have the new 21st century muscle memory that's this? For whatever reason, you just are constantly grabbing for your phone to see that headline, to see that ding? Or have you ever grabbed your phone from your pocket to look at it and go, why did I just take my phone from my pocket? We know that, don't we? There was no ding, there was no buzz, there was nothing to tell me, but there's got to be something next going on there. There's got to be some sort of new information. It's the total plague of the 21st century. We are not content to sit in now. I want what's new. I want what's next. Put your hand up if you identify with that. Come on, let's all get together. Seven of you, liars. (laughs) So I love what you guys have been doing right now, looking at this series on the tabernacle, Living Tense. Because any time I've read through the story of the tabernacle in Deuteronomy or in Exodus here or in Deuteronomy or Leviticus, wherever it talks about the processes and the patterns and the work involved in the tabernacle, I'm reminded of something incredibly important. God is not, this is bugging, isn't it, in a hurry. He's not worried about what's gonna happen next in your work or in your home or in relationships. He, of course, he already knows but he's not worried about it because he's much more interested in the process of now and he's much more interested in you than he is in what you may produce or create or happen into next God didn't need, we're going to look at this in a second, God didn't need the tabernacle. We desperately needed this picture and reality of the tabernacle. I love Isaiah says it in Isaiah, it's not going to come up, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. God said through Isaiah, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? I don't need a house but God wanted his people to draw close to him. And he wanted them, he wanted to paint a picture for them in this process. He he wanted to paint a picture that would force them to slow down. This forced them to listen, forced them to slow down. It forced them to obey. It took time like an It takes time to read through the instructions, let alone to do it. It took attention when they built it, when they took it apart every time, when they carefully transported it, and when they put it back together. This wasn't just to fill 40 years in the wilderness. Part of this was remembering now, now. One of the big points of the tabernacle, and we're going to get into the main point of today, was God making it clear that I am holy. I am awesome, and I am not in a hurry, but I <laughs> am sadly, totally opposite of this. I want something new. I want it now. Even spiritually, right? You know, we get our Uversion app or whatever, Bible reading, check, prayer, check, Lectio 365 done for the day, check. Now, what can I move on to? I want to get to the next thing, and I want to get to the next thing. So I love this picture and this pattern that you guys have been going through, and we're going to look at it again today that God gave us through his Tabernacle. In the tabernacle, we get this picture, yes, this one here, of how we are called to interact with God and, and how God wants to dwell amongst us. see right in the center of that courtyard first you get the altar and it was the biggest thing other than the the, the physical structures it was the biggest object in the temple and it represented the atone well it was the atonement sacrifices that they put on it to burn for their sins and it it obviously foreshadowed toward Jesus this massive hugely important object Next, right behind it, you see the bronze laver, this bowl, which the priests would wash their hands in before they would make sacrifices or, or enter the holy place. And then next slide, inside the tabernacle, there was the menorah. On your left there, the golden lamp of seven lamps that was the only light. It was actually dark in there. This was the only light in the tabernacle, representing the reality that God is the only light in the world. And then across from the menorah, there's that table of showbread, which is the bread that symbolizes God's present, present and desire to be present with his people. But, finally... Closest to the curtain and the holiest of holies, right in front of the Ark of the Covenant, the footstool of the holy, eternal God, was the altar of incense. And it was quite small. And we're going to learn later that it represents the prayers of God's people. So if that doesn't excite you, just wait. Hopefully it will. I want to read through Exodus 30's description of this altar. So turn with it, turning your Bibles, click to it. It's going to come up here as well. Exodus 30, starting at verse 1. It says, make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It is to be square, a cubit long, a foot and a half, and a cubit wide, and two cubits high. Its horns of one piece with it. Overlay the top and all the sides and all the horns with pure gold and make gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the molding, two on each of the opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. And make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, this meticulous detail that would have taken so much time to prepare and and transport. And then verse 6, put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the ark of the covenant law before the atonement cover that is over the tablets of the, covenant, of the covenant law, where I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends to the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight so that incense will burn regularly before the Lord for generations to come. And what I loved as I read this again a couple weeks ago was that the picture that God gives us with the tabernacle is that the closest thing to the presence of God is nothing to do with action or effort and everything to do with prayer. It's not about what we can do for him or what he can do and has done for us, although that is hugely important. This item closest to the Holy of Holies is just about prayer. And I think that's so important because it shows us that the closest thing to God's heart is simply time and our hearts. You saw the picture before. The further you get from the holiest of holies, from that end of the tabernacle, the more it becomes about transaction. You guys are good getting those slides up there. It's about what God can offer to us and and what we can offer to him. I offer sacrifices to God and he takes away my sins. Or I wash my hands and my feet and he cleanses me. This is all about transaction out in the courtyard. And even if you think about this in post-resurrection, it's still about transaction. It's about my sins. I confess them to God and the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Take these away. And this is incredibly important. We need the atonement sacrifice. We're eternally dead. We're, we know this. We're eternally separate from the creator God of the universe if it wasn't for the atonement sacrifice. And that's why that altar was so big in the courtyard. But what is amazing is that one of the smallest objects in the tabernacle... One and a half feet by one and a half feet by three feet. The closest thing to the heart of God is simply about prayer. And this is not transaction. We love transaction. What can I do and what can he do? This is the symbol of just stopping just spending time just listening and talking it's the symbol of relationship with the king of kings and lord of lords and i think that's so beautiful and so important I love that verse 9 highlights this. It's going to come up here. It says, Do not offer any unholy incense on this altar, this small altar, or burn any offerings or grain offerings or liquid offerings. Don't do that on this one. Once a year, Aaron will purify the altar by smearing its horns with blood from the offering made to purify the people from their sins, from the other big altar. This will be regular annual event from generation to generation, for this is the Lord's most this- is the Lord's most holy altar. This is not about offering sacrifices or penance or guilt. Those go in the ones in the courtyard. This tiny altar, the one that sits right beside the holiest of holies, this altar is just about your time with the king. God delights when we simply turn our hearts to him with words, with mumbles, with groanings, with celebrations, with shout, with singing like we did this morning, with our humble silence. But God not only gives us this, this picture of, of spending time with him, he also gives us this powerful sensory picture of the sight and smell that arises to the throne room. This picture of of, of incense starts in the tabernacle, but it continues right through the Psalms into the revelation of John. Psalm 141.2, David says, May my prayers be set before you like incense. And I love it as I sat and thought about this. I thought about, you know, someone weeping before the Lord or someone celebrating with joy before the Lord and God sitting in his throne and close with us just going, but not just in a beautiful inhalation, but an emotional inhalation. Maybe he's weeping with you as he does it or smiling with you, but just enjoying the scent as it arises from your prayers. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You're crying or you're singing and God's going... I love it, and I'm with you in this. And then the very end of the Bible, John in Revelation 5 says, the lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat in the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp ring, and they were holding golden bowls full of, of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. How cool is that? In the throne room, the the, the elders and and the creatures and the elders are holding these massive bowls and the weight of them is the weight of the words or lack of words or cries or mumbles that you've poured to God. And every time you speak more of them, it adds to the weight and the size of these bowls. I love that. And as I thought about it more, I wonder if prayer is shown to be so beautiful and enjoyable to God because it symbolizes a shift. It symbolizes a shift from trust in ourselves to trust in God, from faith in ourselves to faith in God, Again, exposure. I'm I'm an addiction. I'm addicted to what ne- what's next. But also, I have natural desires. My natural desires and yours too are to want to make things right before we come to God. Right? I want to solve that problem so I'm worthy to come to Him. My natural desire is to, every, to do everything I can to solve the problem that I'm in. And maybe last minute, if I can't solve it or if Chris can't solve it for me, then I'll take it to God. Or our natural desire is to hide our mistakes until we have nowhere else to turn. Okay, God, I, I turn them to you. Or, our, or worse, our natural desire is to take credit when things go great. Our natural desire to, is to take it on ourselves. But God delights when we stop in the middle of our panic or at the discovery of a problem or in the midst of a celebration, and say, help, Father, or sorry, Father, or thank you, Father, or yes, Father. He loves it when we stop and just remember that he is God, not you, and he is here. About ten years ago, um, I was going through a really stressful number of months, a year and a bit in in the church I was working for, with um, division and relationship breakdown, just a really stressful number of months and it was a really hard time for a lot of people and, and I was caught right in, in the middle of it and in the the midst of this, it was also Christmas, and we were running up to all, we all know this, all the preparations for church and life and family to Christmas. And But the good thing was I felt like we were kind of coming to the end of that season of darkness, that season of heaviness. So I kind of felt like there was light at the end of the tunnel. You know, like when you see the end of the, the marathon race, you can get there, but if that end disappeared, you're dead. And I was in that place, and it was difficult, and it was hard, and I was stressed, and I was tired, but the end was in sight. And I was sitting in my office one day, And I got this text. And this single text, what it said, threw like a gallon of petrol right back on that fire. And it yanked one of these beautiful rugs right out from underneath me and deflated me. And I read this text and I remember my heart just sinking and my chest start pounding and you've probably it's like probably a panic attack and my my throat closing and, and my breath changing. And so what did I do? I got out my phone and I phoned the first elder, the guy I knew could help me solve the problem and, boom, boom, and he's not answering the phone. So I closed, I think I texted him and then I tried, who do I phone next? And I phoned the next guy or the next girl and they didn't answer their phone. And I, I phoned a few people and no one could, I couldn't get a hold of anyone. And I'm sitting in my office with my heart pounding and my chest speeding up, my, my breathing speeding up panicking. And I remember thinking so clearly, why am I trying to talk to anyone and everyone, literally anyone, anyone would have done except God? And I remember being really convicted about that. And, and so I stopped and my Bible was sitting on my desk with dust on it there. No, I'm joking. But not even knowing what to do, I just grabbed my Bible, and I, I remember not even knowing. I just, I just needed something. And so I turned to Psalm 23, like, where else do you turn? <laughs> and I actually even remember thinking, you know, is it so sometimes, is it so trite, you know? We read this so many times. Is there even any power in that? And, um, but I stopped, and, and I flicked to it just probably, like, nervously as I'm doing now because I can't find it in the middle of my Bible and stopping with these words. My heart's pounding, my breath is still quick, my head is spinning, and I read, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And I physically remember Oh. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. And it's so vivid. I just remember, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And, and I kept reading along and I read right through to Psalm 24, which Chris just read this morning. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Thank you, Lord, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. It's yours. This is yours. (sighs) Thank you, Lord. And I remember I just kept reading right down to Psalm 25. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Thank you, Lord. Help me to do that, Lord. I felt like I needed to solve this. I need to solve this, but thank you, Lord. And I remember just sitting and my breath calming and this unbelievable peace flowing over me. Nothing changed about my circumstances. There was still a long road to go through that journey. But that was the first of several experiences in that journey where I found trust and peace and faith just stopping with the king. And as I think about that and the altar of incense... God must get so much delight in that. First of all, as a father, first of all, just to see his child go from panic to peace. If I saw that in my daughter, my son, I would be delighted to see them move from panic to peace. Just to move from stressing, from fighting to looking and listening and resting in his arms. Not transaction, (laughs) just prayer. If you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle or a sister or a brother, you can understand how much delight that would give you, can't you? Last Christmas, I was going for a run And thinking and praying, and I was caveat that by not like, I was running and praying. I'm so awesome. (laughs) I run because I can't pray sitting down (laughs) because I'm so distracted and I, I pray so I can run. I wouldn't do it either any other way. But last Christmas, I was praying. That's my caveat. I have to say every time I was praying and running. And obviously, we were entering, entering a new year as a people and as a church, and we had plans in place and sermon series and projects. But I just remember on this run being struck by, we've planned all this stuff, and of course, we've prayed about it and done all that, but have we really sat and just listened? God, what do you really want from us? And so I remember just running and, and saying those words, God, we have all this, but what do you want from us this year? What do you want us to do? What do you want us to focus on? God, I want to hear your voice. What do you want from us this year? And as soon, literally as soon as I started asking this question, running along this forest trail, these words came into my mind so clear as a day. This was last December. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And this is obviously part of John 15, five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You will, you will do lots of great things, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And I remember it was like a kick in the face or a kick in the butt or whatever it was I needed at that time of God saying, all those plans are great, all that stuff is great. But stop with me. Slow down with me. Because everything else flows from that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. God gave the Israelites, the picture's not going to come up again, but God gave the Israelites the plan and pattern and rhythms of the structure of the tabernacle, not just to give them something to do and keep them busy while they wandered, but to show them that he was with them, that he wanted them with him, and to show them how they could have relationship with a holy awesome creator, God. And to do this, they were called to obedience. They were called to confession. They were called to sacrifices and the beautiful atonement that foreshadows the sacrifice of Jesus. All that is hugely important. But the closest thing to the presence and power of God he gave them was the tiny altar of incense. The prayers of his people. Not calling them to work or to give or transact, but calling them to stop. But that takes us back to where we started today in the big Challenge. It takes us back to our 21st century problem. We want to do, yeah? We want to go, we want to be distracted. We want to be entertained. We are entertained on a level never seen before in history. We want to accomplish something. And when we're done that, we want to move on to the next thing, the next project, the next activity, the next Netflix series. You have like 10 seconds before the next episode starts. And prayer means stopping. It means slowing down. It means creating space, quality time with the king. But in order to have quality time, here's the trick. We need to create quantity time. And there's no other way around that. We stumble into beautiful moments of quality time with our friends, our wives, our kids, our work colleagues, whatever. We stumble into beautiful moments of quality time in the the midst of quantity time. So we desperately need to prioritize time. And we're absolutely rubbish at it. Very few of us are good at it. A friend of mine uh, sent me this excerpt, stick up the next slide, of this book, Beholding, um, by this guy, Strahan Coleman. And I've only ever read this excerpt, but based on this, I want to read the book. Listen to this. Bizarrely, to be bored today... One must be highly motivated. It's far easier to read the news on the toilet, listen to a podcast while you walk, take the highway instead of the scenic route, pick up a book, organize another coffee, clean the house, catch up on work, or do whatever else may be your boredom slayer of choice. What person in their right mind would ever choose to be bored? Beholders. If you ask me. To be bored, we have to clear copious amounts of space in our lives through the little moments that gather around us in our in-between minutes. In other words, It's the decision to not listen to the radio in traffic, to not check social media on our toilet break. Who does that? Every one of us. And to just sit there, sorry, most of us, and stare out a window during the sunset or a rainy night instead of watching a movie. The opportunity of boredom arrives at any moment where our first reaction to reach for our phones Food, or some other stimulant of choice. Not doing those things gives us time to be gripped by God. Do you relate to that? So if the tabernacle shows us that simply creating space and time for God is the closest thing to his heart and the act that encounters his, his power and his presence, and if Jesus tells us that, the great, that, that apart from him we can do nothing, the greatest thing is to abide, is to remain, How do we get past that struggle to just stop, to just remain? And the first thing is we need to throw off the shackles uh, of our modern age, the shackles, the chains of distraction, the chains of entertainment, the chains of addiction, whatever they are for you. And we need to fight for space, We need to fight for time. We need to fight with our brains for the ability to listen and even just make space to be bored. That is so important for so many psychological and emotional reasons. It's so important for your health, let alone for prayer. I just want to finish with three brilliant encouragements from Tyler Stanton. Um, Tyler is the is it, pastor of Bridgetown Church. He's the national director of 24-7 Prayer USA. And he's written this brilliant book. It's not up on the screen. Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. Has anyone read this? Get it. It's absolutely brilliant. And he gives us, actually, I'll read from it in a second, but he gives us these three brilliant tips about prayer. One, pray because you're overwhelmed. We just heard that this morning. Pray because you're overwhelmed. We don't need to come to God in our strength or when we've got everything sorted, when we've got that addiction, that sin, that problem resolved. God meets us most powerfully in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12:9 says, God's made God's power is made perfect in weakness. Hebrews 4, it tells us to boldly approach the throne of God for grace when we need it most, not when we're on top. When we need it most. Pray because you're overwhelmed. Don't get it sorted. 2. Pray because complaints are welcome, and and I love this. I just read Psalm 23. We love Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. It's powerful. But sometimes I love Psalm 22 more. Listen to this. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from me when I groan for help? Every day I call out to you, my God, but you don't answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. There's more psalms like that almost in the Bible than there are faithful, peaceful, calm psalms. Pray because complaints are welcome. And three... Pray because the only way to get it wrong is by trying to get it right. I love that. And I just want to finish by reading one thing from Tyler's book. Page 21, in case you get the book later. How should we pray? The most straightforward response is to talk to God about what's on your mind. That's it. You talk to God like a friend. You vent, you ask, you laugh, you listen, you unload, you just talk. You don't try to sound more holy or pure or spiritual than you are. Prayer isn't a noble monologue. It's a free-flowing conversation. And the only way to get prayer wrong is to try to get it right. Do you need to hear that today? The tabernacle reminds us that the death and resurrection of Jesus is central. It's vital. It is the thing. The biggest object in the courtyard was the altar of atonement. It reminds us that we desperately need Christ because we can't do it in ourselves. We need his life. It reminds us of the necessity of confession and the power of cleansing waters. It reminds us that God's the light of the world, the only light of the world. And on the table, it reminds us that he wants his presence with us. He wants to be, to dwell with us. But right next to the holiest of holies, the presence and the power of God is a tiny altar. Altar that calls us to stop and to spend time, laughing time, weeping time, shouting time, asking time, crying time, celebrating time with the all powerful creator of the universe, King of Kings, Abba, Father, God. And so we need to pray. Help. Let me pray for us. Father. Help. Spirit. Help. Jesus, help. We need you. We love you. We're confused by you. We're excited about you. We have questions for you. We have demands of you. And we desperately need to know you. Help me and help us start to stop. And help us know the delight of your heart in it. I pray this in Jesus' holy and awesome name. Amen. Help us, Lord.